theyeshiva.net. Good afternoon, everybody. Bruchai Sabayas. It's been quite a while, as they say. I think our last uh, live in-person class was the Tuesday before Purim at Rabbi Radinsky's shul, you remember? <laughs> it was getting packed here, so I got permission to use that shul. We got to use it for one week, and uh, that was that. The next week there was no uh, live in-person class. I know many of you have been with us on uh, Zoom or the yeshiva.net, but uh, as they say, they're seeing and they're seeing, and even though gam zoom l'toiva, but nonetheless, we're good. Nonetheless, it's uh, grateful to be able to be back here, physically, not just virtually, with all of you, and uh, oops, thank you for, thank you for gracing us with your presence. Physical presence, that is. You're welcome. I know it's been a very long year and a half, literally year and a half. And uh, it's almost like BCE, you know, BCE, before Corona existed. And then there's uh, CE, after Corona emerged. And uh, it's really, uh, you know... Fascinating and interesting and, and sad and tragic and, uh, insightful to, uh, learn how much everybody's life was upended and really transformed so dramatically in one form or another over a relatively short period of time with the upheaval that affected the world globally and communities collectively and everybody and families individually. So, you know, there were a few members of this shir who have also passed away during the corona. Good? It fell off. Okay. So first of all, I want to begin by expressing, you know, comfort and condolences to all those who are here who have lost loved ones of lost family members, who have lost close friends, neighbors, teachers, mentors, and I know it's true about every single one of us. And uh, it's really a very difficult and challenging era for so many. But we're grateful also for all the lessons that we learned and all the memories that we retain and the resilience and uh, confidence and courage that we share with each other and with our loved ones to be able to be here back together, with more might, vigor, and stamina. I also want to thank the shul, and everybody involved for allowing this opportunity. I want to thank Mrs. Klein. Of course, the other Mrs. Klein as well, for all the work. And bringing us all together. And again, thank you for everybody being here and welcome everybody who's here physically, everybody who's here virtually and everybody who's here on Zoom. We had a lot of Zoom people and they were very afraid that the Zoom was going to stop. So I put up the Zoom as well. So welcome to all the Zoomers. Oops. Don't tell me I just shut it by mistake. Oh, I didn't. And I want to thank Torah anytime for streaming it live and Rip David who's doing here the videos. So thank you to all. And 
Let's begin. The reason there was a time change is I also wanted it in the morning <laughs> for more than one reason. I still want it in the morning. The challenge here is that over the last uh, year and a half, among all the other changes, the shul has now approximately 5,000 people coming every morning to Dava. 5,000 people, approximately. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I don't know the exact number. Maybe a little less. Maybe a little more. more. (laughs) It's just anecdotal. I never did the count. I'm not junior. How many people come here? But it starts at 4 in the morning. (laughs) 2 in the morning. uh, Or 2 in the morning. And it slowly fizzles out at this point. Still going strong, yeah. So uh, literally every 15 minutes, a minion and some of them are packed. So it's, it's, it's literally a few thousand people every morning. So it was just every centimeter of space is taken up in the morning. And the parking lot is also pretty much impossible. So this was the earliest time uh, we managed to uh, hijack. <laughs> so I know that it's, it's inconvenient for many, but I just thought the only other option was not to have it and to continue it in Zoom. So after convening with some very wise women, we decided let's, uh, you know, let's experiment, let's begin. And uh, we'll see how it goes. So I know, it's, I know it's inconvenient. I know it's challenging for me. It's also not that convenient. But I thought it's better than uh, than the alternative. I'll do that at the end, okay? Because a few people will trickle in. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So everybody knows. <laughs> this feels a little awkward for me. This experience. I'm used to my screen. <laughs> I don't know if the, I didn't have to ask for a year, and I didn't have to ask anybody to turn off their cell phone. You know that. Right, I could just mute them. I just muted them. It was a machaya. <laughs> I'm not going to ask again today either. You've heard it enough over the years. Okay, during the month of Elul, the last month of the year, everybody knows the famous custom that we uh, say twice a day a special capital in Tehillim. Special chapter from Psalms, chapter 27, Kapitel Chavzayin, which begins with the words, Ladavid Hashem Oiri Imira. It's done in many communities, not all, but many communities during Shachris, during Mincha. Some even do it during Mayriv. And the reasons are numerous. One of them is because the Medrash says in Medrash Tehillim on this Pasuk, that Hashem Oiri, God is Hashem is my light, refers to Rosh Hashanah. Yishi, Hashem is my salvation, refers to Yom Kippur. Later it says, Ki Yitzpineni B'Sukai, refers to Sukkot. He hides me, he protects me in a Sukkah. Another explanation is because in this capital, Tehillim, you have 13 times the name of Hashem. If you count, Ladavid Hashem, Oiri V'Yishi, Mimi Ira, Hashem, Moiz Chaya, Mimi Efchod. Achas Sha'alti Me'es Hashem, Oiz Avakish, Shifte Beves Hashem. It's 13 times, all the way till the end, Kaveh Hashem, Hashem, 13 times, which corresponds to the 13 Midas, the 13 attributes of compassion, which Darizal says are manifested throughout the entire month of Elul. Another reason that's given is at the end, he says, that uh, without my faith and resilience and hope in you, 
It would have been very hard to endure. Lula is the same letters like the month Elul. Lula is Lamed Vav, Lamed Aleph, which is Loi and Loi, Lamed Vav, Lamed Aleph. So Lule is Lamed Vav, Lamed Aleph. Lula, which is the concept of the same letters as the month of Elul. It connects also to what Yehuda told Yaakov. He said, Kilula Hismamanu, if we would have not tarried, we could have returned twice. To bring Binyamin and bring back Shimon, which is also Lula Hismamanu during the month of Elul, Vishavnu, the month of Tshuva. And there's other reasons given. But what I want to focus today in this class is on the opening verses of this unique capital Tehillim. It's a very, very moving chapter in Tehillim. And those who don't understand uh, the prose, the Hebrew of Tehillim, it's worthwhile to learn this chapter in English when you say it, because it's extremely powerful. It's very, very comforting. It's extremely uh, poignant and also it provides a person with a lot of perspective and a lot of strength. But I would like to delve a little deeper into the actual words that David HaMelech says in this unique chapter, the opening psukim. It begins with the words, L'David, which means it's a psalm for David. It's a poem that was written and sung by David HaMelech. So he begins, L'David, Adenoi oiri v'yishi mimi ira. Adenoi moyos chayai mimi efchot. Translation, it's a poem for David. Hashem is my light and my salvation. From whom shall I fear? Hashem is the strength of my life. From who should I be intimidated and petrified? That's the opening verse. So David HaMelech says, Hashem is Oiri, my light. Oiri is light, my Oir. V'yishi, from the word Yeshua, he is my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid of? Mimi'ira. And then he continues... Hashem is the stronghold of my life. Ma'oiz, from the word oiz, strength. He's the stronghold of my life. And therefore, mimi efchot, from whom should I be petrified or intimidated? And then he continues the next verse. And that is, When the oppressors come to me and they want to eat my flesh, they stumble and fall. Even if a platoon descends on me and I'm still not afraid, even if they declare war against me, in this I have confidence and trust. And then the famous Pasuk, which became a song, actually many songs, I ask one thing of Hashem, this is what I plead for, and that is to dwell, to sit in the house of Hashem all the days of my life, to gaze at the pleasantness of Hashem, and to visit His sanctuary. Often, when we read these psukim, we can sense the power, the confidence, the faith inside of them contained in these words, but it's often easy to gloss over the nuanced depth and the intricate glory that is conveyed in the nuances and in the choice of words and in the, and in the structure and syntax of the sentences of David HaMelech. So let's see. 
he begins Ladovid, Hashem Oiri Viyishi. Hashem is my light and my salvation. Who should I be afraid of? And then he continues, Hashem is the strength of my life. Who should I be petrified of? So he has three different expressions about Hashem. First, he says, he's my light, Oiri. Then he says, Yishi, he's my salvation. There must be a difference between the two. He's my light, he's my salvation. And then he adds a third description, Ma'oiz the stronghold, the strength of my life. What is the difference between my light, my salvation, and the strength of my life? But it goes more than this, because if you tune in to the structure, he separates the Pasuk into two sections. And each time he mentions Hashem's name again. He says, Hashem oiri v'yishi mimi'ira. Hashem is my light and my salvation. Who should I be afraid of? And then he begins again. Hashem Hashem is the strength of my life. Who should I be petrified of? He could have done it all together. He could have said, Hashem oiri v'yishi He doesn't do that. He mentions Hashem's name twice. Once before discussing Oiri and Yishi, and once before discussing Hashem as Ma'is Chaya. Why? So we want to know what the three descriptions mean, but also why they get divided into two sections. And the first time around, he uses the word Ira. The second time around, he uses the word Efchad. Now we usually translate them identically or almost identically. Ira means afraid, I'm afraid. Efchad means I'm afraid, I'm petrified, I'm scared, I'm intimidated, I'm startled, I'm overwhelmed, I dread. But all of these are connected to the idea of fear and dread and intimidation. But David HaMelech chooses different expressions for different descriptions. So when he says Hashem is my light and my salvation, mimi ira, who should I be afraid of, who should I be scared of? When he says, Hashem Mois Chayai, he now changes the description. He says, Mimi Efchat. Who should I be petrified of? First, Yira, Mimi Ira, and then Mimi Efchat. One might say, well, this is how you write poetry. <laughs> Which is true. You don't, you're not supposed to repeat. You don't repeat. I mean, you could, but you try to use a different word, a different expression. In the language of the Mepharshim, it's called Melitza. Lashon Melitza. Melitza means pleasant, a pleasant language to speak in eloquence. One's verbiage and prose, especially poetry, wants to be eloquent. That's how you capture a person's imagination. You diversify the message. You convey it in different words. You do it in communication, whether it's verbal communication, certainly in writing. But nonetheless, we're dealing with the Tanakh, and especially the Sefer of Tehillim. So indeed, the language is eloquent, elegant, and eloquent. The prose is certainly glorious and splendorous, but it's also extremely meticulous and precise. And the fact that he uses here the word ira and the word efcha, the fact that he repeats Hashem's name a second time, the fact that he has different expressions, all really need to be understood and experienced viscerally what Avad HaMelech is really sharing here from the depth of his own soul. I want to focus on one more detail. He continues and he says, I ask for one thing from Hashem. This is what I beg for. To dwell in the house of Hashem all the days of my life. To gaze at his pleasantness, to visit his sanctuary. On this, the Medrash Tehillim 
teaches a fascinating lesson. It says that when Hashem shared this with, when David HaMelech, when King David shared this with Hashem, Hashem said, excuse me, you're contradicting yourself. First you tell me, yeah, I need from you one thing. So I'm expecting to hear one request. So ask for one thing. Suddenly, do you download on me a package of requests? Shifti beves Hashem kol yemei chayai, laxes benoyem Hashem, levakir behecholoi. And he continues, it's peneni besukoi beimra yastireni, atoyorim roishi. Come on. You know when somebody asks you for one favor, right? Somebody asks, I just need one thing. But suddenly that one, one minute. Or one minute. Yes, one minute. (laughs) You know, the Jew who comes to God and he says, God, it says in Tehillim, also in Tehillim, a thousand years for you is one day, which means that a million dollars for you is one dollar, right? So what is it for you to give me one dollar, which is a million dollars? God says, wait a minute. So... David Amalek asks for one thing, he says it's not fair. Which, before I get to the answer, David responded, okay, well, well why did Hashem get upset that David Amalek didn't phrase it right? He should have said, I want to ask for 10 things. Okay, so he asked for one thing and then he asked for 10 things. But Hashem is like, this is not fair. So what David Amalek, what's David Amalek? A Jew always has a good answer. So David Amalek gives the best answer. Mimchalamadati. Everybody learns a skill from somebody else. They all have a mentor. I learned this from you. In Parshas Ekev, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people just a few weeks before he passes away, Va'ato Yisrael, Mo Hashem me'imach. Yisrael, Jews, what does Hashem already ask from you? Kiyim, only one thing. Liyiras Hashem alekecha. to fear God. Okay, stop the sentence. No! Then he starts, and to love him, and to do his mitzvahs, and to connect to him. So he says, You did the same thing to us. Quit per quo. You made it sound like you want one thing, and then suddenly it's much more than one thing. This is the exchange that the Medrash records between David HaMelech and Hashem, which seems like a very strange exchange. Like God is upset that he's saying one thing, so David says, you're blaming me. Blame yourself. Look in the mirror. You do the same thing. Right? It looks like <clears throat> I'm giving you a finger and you want more and more. And you say, you know, you give a finger, you want asking for more and more. What's the meaning of this? How do we understand this? So the Magad of Mizrich says that David HaMelech wasn't contradicting himself. Sometimes one thing can have many details. <laughs> it's achas sha'alti. It's one. But this achas has many protim, it has many details, it has many nuances. So he says, Shifti Hashem kol But that then could be manifested in many different ways and many different has many different aspects. That's why he goes into the details. And the same is true with Hashem. Hashem did the same thing. I ask of you Liyiris Hashem Tavir Shamayim, but that includes many aspects. But then the question is, David Amalek could have just told that to Hashem. I'm really asking for one thing, but this one thing has many details. What did he have to say? I learned this from you. There's also something else that seems enigmatic. 
If you open up a Medrash Tehillim, which is the basic Medrash on Tehillim, on these words, Reb Abba, the son of Reb Kahana, Reb Abba Bar Kahana says two words, Malchus Shal. David HaMelech was really asking for royalty. He was asking for the throne. He was requesting monarchy. And when you read this Medrash, and when I read it, I'm wondering, where did Reb Abba get this information? There is no intimation here for any request for the throne. On the contrary, he says, the only thing I ask for is to sit and dwell in the house of Hashem all the days of my life. Why would Reb Abba say Malchus Shal? He was asking for Malchus, for kingship. Where did he see it in the words? The commentators are so perturbed by this that they go so far as to say that Reb Abba derived it from the fact that David HaMelech said, I want to sit in the house of Hashem. Because there's an interesting halacha that in the Beis HaMikdash, everybody stood. The Koyanim, the priests who did the service, they all stood in the Beis HaMikdash. You had to stand. Even the people who came to visit, there was the Azara, the sections that people, guests, could come visit. There were different sections where the Koyanim could go in, where the Israelim went in, section for men, section for women. But through all these sections, people stood. Chazal say, The only ones who could sit in the Beis HaMikdash, in certain parts of it, were the kings of Beis David. So when David HaMelech is saying, Shifti Beis Hashem, I want to sit, I want to sit in the house of Hashem, this means Malchus he wants to be a king, because only the kings of Beis David could sit in the Azar. Nonetheless, it's a very difficult interpretation to understand, because really this was the one request, you got to have one request in life, that when everybody stands, I should get a seat. Everybody in the Mesamitish will be standing. I want to be able to sit. And this he's asking for when he's not a king yet. He's asking to be a king. He's going to be the first king of Beis David. And he didn't even build the Beis Hamikdash. He prepared it, he planned it, he dreamed of it. His son built the Beis Hamikdash. So to say that his whole Achas Sha'alti was to sit, I want to sit when everybody stands. I want to make sure to have a seat in the Beis Hamikdash. And that's his one request. And that's how he knows Malchus Shah. Seems difficult to understand. What did the sages mean when they said he was asking for Malchus? As I mentioned earlier, 13, Hashem's name is mentioned here 13 times in this capital, corresponding to the 13 attributes of compassion that are revealed in Elul, Rosh Hashanah, and Kippur, which begin with the words, Vayavra Hashem Alpana Vayikra, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum Vachanon Erech Apayim, Verav Chesed Vemes, Nerze Chesed Alofim, Nerze Ovim, Vafesha Vachatov Anakeh. So Chazal in the track, the Talmud Rosh Hashanah 18 asks, why does it say Hashem's name twice? Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachem Vachano. So the Gemara answers, Kan, Rashi quotes in the Parshish Kisisa, Kan Koydim Sheyechta, Kan La'achar Sheyechta. There is compassion before one sins and there's compassion after one sins. That's Hashem, Hashem twice. One is before the sin and one is after the sin. Ask the commentators, the Rosh and many commentators, why does one need compassion before the sin? I understand compassion after one sins, after one transgresses, there's a need for compassion. But why do you need the Hashem Kaidim Sheyechta before the sin? It's difficult. The Holy Zidat once said that people who don't sin also need compassion because they could become arrogant. It's the feeling of holier than thou. In other words, somebody who makes mistakes, they're vulnerable, they're human, they're, human, they're sensitive. They know their incompleteness. Somebody who never sins... He says, they're, they're, they have a special danger lurking. It's the danger of haughtiness. It's the danger of uh, holier-than-thou syndrome. It's the danger of judgmentalism. I sit in the throne of judgment because I'm so perfect. 
So the Zidr Shreva says, you really need Midasarachim, and you really need to be able to have compassion. Compassion on yourself too, so you can also have compassion on others. It's the special compassion that perfect people need. So to speak, perfect people. Now, perfection could sometimes be the worst imperfection because I become a judgmental, dismissive, uh, non-empathetic person. I simply can't relate to other people. So it's an, it's an, it's an interesting Torah, why you need Midas Harachim and before you sit. But I want to share another perspective because it opens us up to the two Hashems in the opening of Ladavid Hashem Ayri. Ladavid Hashem Ayri Mi'ira, Hashem Those are the first two Hashems that correspond, you remember it's 13 times. So those are the first two that correspond to the Hashem Hashem in Yudgimu Midas Harachim. One is before the mistake and one is after the mistake. And it's here that we'll be able to appreciate what it means. You're my light, you're my salvation, and you're the strength of my life. There are two reasons, I mean, more than two, but in a very general fashion. We're talking about achas, you know, sometimes one can translate into many. So there's two, but these two I know could be subdivided into many. But there's two general reasons. Why people, why me, why we, why humans make mistakes and sometimes big mistakes. One is because I'm clueless in very simple English. And one is because I simply don't feel I have the strength to do anything else. The first reason a person may make a mistake is because I'm simply clueless. Because I don't know better. The Gemara says that when somebody does a sin and repeats it, After doing something twice, it already becomes permissible. The first time, it's like, oh, the second time, okay, not a big deal. The Kotzke Rebbe says, what happens when you do it a third time? So the third time, it becomes a mitzvah. Sometimes people are so clueless that... It's not, it's not just I do the same thing over and over again. It can even be a mitzvah in my mind. When a person, and it's not necessarily their fault, it's not about judgment. Sometimes a person really does not have the intellectual IQ, or more importantly, the emotional EQ, to be able to be sensitive, to be able to appreciate the reality before them. There are people who are very book smart, they have a lot of information, they have a lot of data, but as somebody once said, today people are reading more and more about less and less. Or some people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Some people know the information, but they don't have the emotional connection. You see it sometimes, especially with people dealing with children or with teenagers, young men or young women or adults. These people, they may mean very well, but they just don't have the ability to understand in a shama from a person. You know that my thing in Chinuch is to connect to somebody's soul, to understand who they really are. If I have no understanding of pain, if I have no understanding of trauma, if I have no understanding of struggle, I may have the best intentions in the world, but I'm often clueless. I'm simply, I don't know how to communicate to the person, and I don't know how to listen to the person. There's again an expression in Tehillim that we say during Aserisimei Tshuva, Kuflamid, 130, Kapitol Kuflamid, Shiramalas Mimamakim. So Shiramalas Mimamakim, David Amalek says, Adeshem, Shima Bikaili, Tiena Znachakashubas Lakota Hanuna. Hashem, listen 
Bikhaili. Now, grammatically, it should have said Shima Likhaili. Listen to my sound. Listen to my voice. Listen to my prayer. So the Baal says, no, Shima Bikhaili. Listen to what is inside my voice. Listen to what is inside my coil. It's very different. Like it says until them, Ashrei Maskil Eldol. Fortunate is the person who understands the poor person. Really? You need to understand the poor person? You need to give money to the poor person. No. Ashrei Maskil Eldol. A person could be saying one thing, but you have to be Maskil Eldol. I have to really understand what is being said, what is being articulated. Sometimes the cry is not something I can pick up with my physical ears. The mitzvah says by shoifer, we say, The blessing on shoifer is to hear the sound of the shoifer. Why not litkaya, to blow? Because the mitzvah is not to blow. The mitzvah is to hear the sound. And to hear the sound of the shoifer, why are we not emitting a sound from our own body? We don't. So the Zoya says, because it's sometimes it's an inner sound that you can't hear. You can't hear it. You actually, it's so primal, you need the animal. You need an animal instrument to be able to utter that sound. That's how deep it is. So very often, I could make mistakes in life. I could transgress. I could make bad mistakes simply because I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm confused or I'm clueless. And the worst type of cluelessness is when I think I know. When somebody doesn't know and they know that they don't know, you'll be humble. You'll ask somebody. You'll deliberate before you open, before I'll deliberate before I open my mouth. But when somebody doesn't know and thinks that they know, I give Valzo the Ibrish to him. Because now, not only am I ignorant, I'm also arrogant. Air ignorance together with arrogance is lethal. Ignorance is ignorance. Who's not ignorant? But air ignorance together with arrogance, together with the inability to be reflective, to be pensive, to be open, to listen, to be introspective, and to understand that maybe, maybe there's certain levels of reality that I simply don't get. They talk a lot about today about HSPs, highly sensitive people, right? Who experience emotions that other people may not experience. Two people, you know how the joke always works, three people walk into a bar, right? The priest, the minister, and the rabbi, okay. So three people walk into a chasana, three people walk into a bar mitzvah. Two people walk out the way they walked in. The other person walks out, and for the next week, they're dealing with stuff. They don't even know what they're dealing with. Because there's frequencies that are absorbed by certain brains and are absorbed by other brains. Just like there are sounds that dogs can hear that I can't hear. There are colors that birds can see I can't see. My retina simply doesn't have the kalim, the instruments to absorb these light frequencies. So in my brain, they don't exist. It's not that they don't exist. They don't exist in my world. This is the humility that wisdom brings to people. The more wisdom, the more humility. Because the more wisdom, one realizes the infinity of reality, the endlessness of reality, the depth of how much there is to grow, to learn more. So therefore, I have a humility. When I have a cluelessness and an arrogance, it could become very dangerous. So that's the first step, the first reason. 
why I'm capable of making mistakes, whether it's in my marriage, whether it's the way I raise my children, whether it's the way I relate to myself, whether it's the way I live my life, navigate my life, is simply because I don't know. I don't understand. We all sometimes do the best we can with the tools that we have. What if my tools are so limited? And what if my... uh, Tool chest, you know the difference, right, between a Jewish home and a non-Jewish home, right? A non-Jewish home, there's usually a whole floor dedicated to tools. At least a whole garage dedicated to tools. At least a shed. And it has every conceivable tool. The Jews in the kitchen sometimes have a drawer. And if you're lucky, you'll find three or four tools because he wants to hire somebody always. You hire somebody to do it. So the bottom line is, how big is my tool chest? Sometimes my tools are very, very limited. I have a few tools. They say that somebody who's a hammer, right? The whole world looks like a nails. The whole world appears nails because I'm a hammer. That's what I know. I don't know anything else. So everything and everybody is a nail. You can't blame the hammer. That's what the chemistry of the hammer dictates. So based sometimes, I'm doing the best I can with the tools that I have. These tools may be limited. Sometimes in life, hopefully, I acquire better tools. My tools evolve. My awareness evolves. But this is one issue that we struggle with. There's another issue. And that is sometimes I do know. But I simply don't feel that I have control. I'm not clueless. I simply feel weak, depleted, overwhelmed, depressed, or really stuck. I, I know, I know this is wrong. You know, sometimes a guy tells me, he's a good person. He's, he has terrible, terrible anger issues. Terrible anger issues. And so people told him, you have to learn more Musser. So he learned more Musser. And he knows, he knows. And he makes a resolution. Every day he makes a resolution that he's going to be better. And he means it. He's not a hypocrite. He's a genuine person. He can't help himself. And he doesn't know why he can't help himself. The reason is, the real reason is, because there's trauma in him. He's stuck. He's triggered in a way that's beyond his control. He's really stuck. The moment he realizes how stuck he is and why he's stuck, he can begin to transcend it. But just like Parai, Hashem says, he has no choice. He's literally stuck. Covid leif Parai. His heart is stuck. I cannot, I cannot take responsibility for every trigger that triggers me. Some of these triggers may be deep reactions based on things that happened to me or things I learned or things I experienced. My choice is what do I do now with it? The reactions are reactions. Sometimes you react a certain way, and if you get angry at yourself and you judge yourself for it, you're actually judging the wrong person because that it's a survival skill that I may have developed at a very young age in order to survive. This is so important to understand. If I can examine and be aware of what's going on, I could finally say, I want to choose another path. I want to choose how not to be dictated and controlled by that trauma, by that inhibition. So sometimes I know exactly what I'm doing wrong, and I say, I'm not in control. You have an addict. Sometimes an addict. Somebody was seriously into addiction. He came to see me, and and he told me, he says, you don't understand. I know that I'm destroying my life. 
But when I'm triggered, when I'm aroused, when I'm experiencing this addiction, everything else does not matter. Everything else is insignificant. That's the disease of addiction. Something, it's very hard to understand for somebody who doesn't understand. That was brilliant. No, it's very hard to understand for somebody who doesn't understand. But it's actually true. And how does a person even begin to deal with that? The first thing is awareness that I really have no control, even if I know it's wrong. So these are two different things. There's cluelessness, and there's the fact that I feel too weak, or I feel I am enslaved to my trauma, to my addictions, to my triggers, and therefore I just go back to those familiar pathways. You know how when you're driving every day to the office, or wherever you drive to, at some point you don't even have to look where you're going. Because your neural pathways already take you down this road because you've been doing it a long time. It's also true about our emotions. It's also true about our behaviors. There are highways in our brain that are so familiar to us, I don't have to think about it. I get into my steering wheel in the morning, right? I check the first email, boom, that's the highway. They're called today in neuroscience, neural pathways. They're literally pathways that our brain is accustomed to travel down because those are our familiar pathways. It takes 60 times of changing my behavior to begin cultivating new neural pathways. It's actually like 60 times of getting lost, right? You know, 60 times getting lost. And finally, choosing to take another highway, and then finally your brain is, okay, there's another option. But in the beginning, it's that struggle. These are my neural pathways. These are two very, very different issues. So David HaMelech speaks and he says, "LeDavid Hashem Oiri V'yishi Mimiira Hashem Mois Chayai Mimiyevchat." The first Hashem, my light and my salvation. What is my light? Light offers clarity. When it's dark in the room or it's light in the room, everything is the same. The people sitting are the same and the tables, the furniture, the props, but I can't see anything. When I'm walking in the street and it's dark, when I'm walking in the street and light, it's the same street, the same ditches, the same pitfalls, the same holes, the same bumps, but there's a difference. I can't see it. So Hashem Oidi, Hashem is my light. The first thing David HaMelech says is, I need you, God, to be my light, to be able to allow me to perceive reality. To be able to allow me to see things. To allow me to open my eyes. I could sometimes live through life with closed eyes. What does it mean with closed eyes? I'm not talking about physically. Physically I may see the reality around me. But emotionally, I may be completely blind. I may be not in tuned to the music. The Baal Shem gave a famous metaphor of a man who comes to the city marketplace And he sees everybody dancing. Everybody. And he comes home and he tells his wife, this is a place of Meshugoyim. We can't live here. It's a place of Jesus. What happened? What happened was everybody in the middle of the street dancing. One thing he didn't understand, he was Nebuch deaf. And he couldn't hear that there was an incredible musician who was playing music and the music was so heart-stirring that everybody was dancing. So in his mind, everybody was crazy. That's what he registered. He was not insane and he was not cruel. He just simply did not have the tools to be able to absorb another energy. The Baal Shem Tov was saying this about life. 
Sometimes people hear the music of life, so they're dancing. David HaMelech says, Ashira Lashem Bechayai, Azamra Leilekai B'Aidi. There's a beautiful song on that too. I don't know if it's the London Boys, uh, London School of Jewish Music, or Perche, you know those songs. Ashira Lashem Bechayai. Huh? Yeah, yeah, the oldies, the oldies. Who is it? London School of Jewish Music, Perche, Rabbi Baruch Shait. One of them, huh? You're dating yourself. I'm dating myself. There was a historian. He didn't like Jews so much. His name was Toynbee. He used to call the Jews the fossils of history. (laughs) They've been around for a long time. But somebody doesn't hear the music. I'm deaf to the music. So I say, Allah is a mishuga. Everybody's mishuga besides me. You know the mice, right? There was a 90-year-old. He was having a birthday. So his wife said, what can I get you for your birthday? He says, you know, I never drove in my life. Maybe you can help me get a license and lease a car. She says, with pleasure. And she helps train him and he gets his license. And for his 90th birthday, he goes on the highway. He's on the Palisades or on the FDR. And his wife calls him. And she says, Chaim Yankel. How is it going? He says, it's amazing. What a birthday gift. It's amazing. It feels like I'm on a go-kart in an amusement park. You know, like the bumping cars. It's Gewaldic. She says, Chaim Yankel, be very careful. Because I just heard on the radio. I just turned on the radio that on the FDR, literally, there is one car going in the opposite direction. Chaim Yankel tells his wife, one car? All the cars besides mine are going in the opposite direction. So, (laughs) Uh, it really happened? Okay, that I didn't know. Okay. It was his 90th birthday present? Okay. (laughs) We all laugh, but how often does this happen in life, especially when it comes to one's internal emotional world? A mother told me the other day that her child is struggling terribly as a teen. And he, and he told her, something happened to me, but I'm not going to tell you what happened to me. So at some point she asked him, and she has a good relationship with him, why would you not tell me what happened? And he said, because I told you already. Because I told you already six years ago what happened. I'm not going to say it again. Now, this woman is beside herself because she's sensitive and she's loving and she's giving, but she never heard it. And I don't think he said it as they say, explicitly, she would have heard it. He said it in a way that he thinks he said it. Shima Bikhaili, could you listen to what is inside of my kail? Lishmaya Kal for this I need to pray every day for light, for oil, for vision. Who was it who was blind and deaf, but she was an amazing... Helen Keller. Helen Keller once said, the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is lacking vision. And she, I saw she writes that somebody told, came into her and said, communicated to her, however they communicated with her, that he or she just went on a hike in the forest. So Helen Keller asked this person... What was your experience like? So he said, nothing. 
nothing very significant to report about. And she said, I'm astounded. What do you mean nothing significant to report about? Tell me about the sounds that you heard. Tell me about the colors that you have seen. Tell me about the vegetation that you observed. What do you mean nothing significant? Some people hear the music everywhere. And they see the light everywhere. They're open. They're attuned to life. They're alive now. But David Hashem Oiri. Save me from my own cluelessness. Because the first prerequisite of light is to realize the fact that I need to realize. To realize the fact that I need to listen. To realize the fact that I need to open myself up to my own inner wisdom, to others' wisdom, most importantly to divine wisdom, to authentic wisdom. There's something else. Viyishi. My help. My salvation. My Yeshua. Oiri addresses those who make mistakes because of cluelessness. I want to be able to have the vision to be able to see what is appropriate, what is inappropriate, what is right, what is wrong. To be able to see what is happening inside of me. Viyishi is, I may have clarity, but I need help. I need resilience. I need strength. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in my cycle. I'm stuck in my orbit. I'm stuck in my blockages. I'm stuck in my addictions. I'm stuck in my habits. I'm stuck in those same neural pathways. Viyishi, help me. Literally help me. This is the first Hashem. This is Kaidim Sheyechta. This is before I make a mistake. So there's Oiri addressing the ignorance, the cluelessness. I need you to be a light, to clarify, to crystallize, to show me truth. And Viyishi, to help me when I simply don't feel I have control. I feel I don't have control. To be able to show me my own infinity, to be able to show me that my posture is aligned with God's infinity. Then there's the second Hashem, Acher Sheyechta. I made mistakes. I messed up. What now? There's a new Hashem. Acher Sheyechta. I don't mean a new Hashem, a second Hashem. I mean there's a new name. And that is Mo'iz Chayai, the strength of my life, the oiz, the resilience of my life, the ability to be able to have the strength to pick myself up after a mistake and learn from it and create a new future. This takes a tremendous sense of mo'iz, a tremendous sense of inner confidence and resilience and strength. So the oiri v'yishi is what precedes my mistake. It helps me focus. It helps me be in a position where I know I always have light with me and I always have yishi with me. But then there's Hashem Mois Chayai to be able to give me the Mois, to give me the strength, the chayzek, the ability that even if I fell and even if I stumbled and even if I made mistakes, I can pick myself up. I can recreate myself. I can learn from my past to create a glorious future and to be the author of my future, my biography. This is Hashem Mois Chayai. And what Mois Chayai means, you're giving me a new strength in life because it's so easy when people have made mistakes, willingly or unwillingly, maybe inadvertently, maybe because of a lack of clarity, maybe because of a lack of control. It's so easy to end up in the new abyss called guilt. What was, was, and it's destined to be like that for the rest of my life. To be able to have the moiz, the inner resilience and oiz, power, it takes power. Hashem moiz chaya. 
It's also one more thing, and that is, it gives your life a new strength, a new power. As Chazal said, There's nothing that could compare to the power of transformation. A person who went through trials and tribulations, who failed, who stumbled, and you emerge from that more sensitive, more empathetic, there's a certain strength about your life. There's a certain inner light and confidence and clarity that exists only because of those experiences that I endured. You simply can't compare it. You can't give it. A tzaddik is a gavaldik thing. But Chazal say in Brachas Lamadala, the Rambam quotes it in the laws of tshuva, where about tshuva stands, the tzaddik can't stand. Why? Because when I descend into darkness, and then I know how to take my darkness and transform it into light, it's a different type of light. It's just a different level. Your empathy is different. Your depth is different. Your conviction is different. Your clarity is different. Your leadership skills are different. Think about, I had last night a, a Zoom with uh, an organization called My Team. My Team <coughs> is an organization dedicated for girls and young women who suffer from chronic illnesses. Non-life-threatening, Baruch Hashem, but chronic illnesses. And these are Besyakov girls, Hasidisha girls from Hasidic schools, young women. And they come together. They come together. So we had, uh, we had a Zoom and they asked some very uh, interesting and also challenging and tough questions. But I shared with them something and it meant a lot to them. But I, like, it, it, I realized how true it is and how authentic it is. And that is, I told them, you know, the only people who really can change the world are people who know what pain looks like. This is not an explanation or rationalization or justification. We don't know the reasons for a lot of the pain in our world. But one thing is clear. You all know this in your life. When you hear, when you hear, a class or a lecture, or a, you have a conversation with somebody who understands what you're talking about and what you're going through, not from the books, but from their guts, from their, from their soul, from their neshama. That's the only real advice we can listen to. It's a whole different level of advice. When you hear such people, it resonates and it pierces through all the layers and it touches you in your gut right away. Why? Because you feel the authenticity of it. And there's nothing that can replace that authenticity. You know, I love when there's these conversations about how to deal with your teenagers. And you have these mothers or fathers who have been parents for like three months. You know, they're walking around, Baruch Hashem, with a carriage, Mazel Tov, Simantov, And they'll give you brilliant advice about how to raise kids in 2021. And they have all the wisdom in the world because they heard six shiurim. They went to a six-month seminar. And, you know, the mothers and the babas look and like, yeah, you know, call me back in 25 years and we'll have a conversation. There's just nothing like life experience. There's nothing like the authenticity that comes from life experience. Reb Nachem once said that uh, there's an amazing thing. Reb Nachem was once... Uh, he used to collect money for Pidyon Shvuyim to liberate Jews from prison. And somebody once informed upon him and he ended up in prison. 
and he was in prison. He was so upset. He says, Rebbeinu Shalolam, I dedicate my life to free your children from prison. This is how you reward me? As he's complaining and expressing himself, and he was really, really frustrated. So there was this, this cleaning lady in the prison who walks into the room and is sweeping. And as she's sweeping, she's covered up, but she's sweeping. This is in Ukraine. And she turns to him and she says, you seem upset. He says, yeah, I'm upset about something. Maybe you want to tell me what? He's like, he's now going to start sharing his conversations with God to a Ukrainian cleaning lady in a Ukrainian prison. But she's like, you know, he didn't even feel it was so appropriate. Rachel Chernobyl was uh, from the tzaddikim of the generation. The Helika Chernobyl, Moirinayim. So he says to her, I'm upset that uh, I dedicate my life to liberate people from prison, and this is where I end up in. And I'm an innocent man. So she says to him, you forgot the Pasuk in Lech Lecha? Since when does this Gentile Ukrainian cleaning lady know Lech Lecha? Who knows, maybe she's a very from Catholic, Greek, Orthodox woman who knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He says, what are you talking about? So Hashem tells Avram Avinu, Lech Lecha. So Rashi says, what's Lecha? Go for you. It's for your benefit. What was the benefit? So says, what? So she says, Avram Avinu was the great Machnes Eirach. He was the great host of the world. Everybody knew his tent is open all four sides. You get a hot, warm meal. You get an embrace. And you get a real place where you can feel at home and comfortable. A home away from home. But can somebody be a real host if they don't know what it feels like to be a refugee? You can't be a real host. Lech lecha. I want you to become a refugee. I want you to relocate. I want you to be on the road. So you'll understand what it means to be a guest. And then you'll be able to be a host. She says, Reb Nachem, could you really do the mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuyim if you don't know what it is to sit in prison? That's why you're sitting in prison. She's like, as he is in prison. Anyway, she continues cleaning. She walks out. He gets out, comes to the Balshemtiv, walks to the Balshemtiv. Balshemtiv says, Tell me, Ibnachim, what does it feel like to hear a Torah directly from Sara Imenu? What is it to hear a Torah directly from Sara? <laughs> Tell me what it's like. Yeah. But what does this really mean? The the real strength of life, when I go through something and then I transform it, when negative energy becomes a catalyst for positive energy, there is no nuclear energy as powerful, as intense as that. And everybody needs to know when you're facing a trauma, when you're facing an addiction, when you're facing a real challenge in life, at the surface, it seems... So, so overwhelming and so unfair and so unjust. And there's room for grief, no question about it. And sometimes many tears. But know that inside that lay lay the key to the strength of your life, to you or me becoming the person I was meant to become. I could live my life weak not really flexing my muscles, not really actualizing my strength, never becoming the person my neshama and my guf was supposed to become. This is the path, to really be- find 
the ultimate strength, to be the ultimate strong, powerful person to extract the deepest, deepest light that can change the world. So I told these girls, I said, I'm not explaining anything. I just want you to know that it's people like you who will become our future leaders. I just want you to know that. I don't know that it comforts. I don't know that it gives solace. I don't, it doesn't eliminate pain. But I just want you to have perspective that it's people like you who become the blueprint, who become the navigators, who become the GPSs, God's positioning system, and show us how to navigate our own ways. That's why the first time he says Ira, the second time he says Efchad, Rashi says in Parshas Ekev, Yira is for something that's distant. Pachad is something that's immediate. You know, you say, Sechapta Pachad, Ashrek. Pachad is like a lion comes into the room. There's Pachad, there's no Yira. Your amygdala starts firing, it's dangerous. That's Pachad. It's immediate, it's right here. Yira is more, it's more intellectual. It's a fear. You think about the future, you think about things that could happen. Jews are good at that, right? It's called worrying. Worrying. I would say worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It keeps you busy, but it gets you nowhere. But not much like a rocking chair. But nonetheless, we have year. That's now you'll see the precision in his words. Hashem Oidivi Hashem Oidivi The light and the salvation is Kaidim Shayakta is before the mistake. I don't have what to fear that in the future I'm going to ruin, I'm going to destroy. Hashem Ma'ishai is after I made the mistake. Now there's already a pachat. It's already here. It's vivid. I messed up. So he says, but you're the strength of my life. You're not only my light and my salvation. You're Ma'ishai. Therefore, mimi efchot. Therefore, I don't look at mistakes as invitations for depression. I look at mistakes, sins, transgressions, averis, chatoyim, avoynas, pshoyim, as catalysts for awareness, as springboards for transformation. It's the opportunity to transform an experience as Sari Imenu or a cleaning Ukrainian lady told Rebnachem Chernobyler. This is the experience you go through to be able to truly help people liberate themselves from their shackles. If I never tasted those shackles, can I understand what those shackles feel like and help you out? How could I? I can't. If, the, if Ramavino didn't know the feeling of the guest, how can he really, really appreciate it? How can he really be that host? If so, now we come da- down to the Achas Sha'alti Me'es Hashem Oisa Avakesh. Namely, if you look at this whole capital in Tehillim, you'll see that David Amalek is not writing from a place of serenity and tranquility. He's lying on a hammock on a beautiful August day, drinking a nice drink, reading a lovely book. That's not what he's writing about. Sorry, people want to eat my flesh. Whoa, there's a platoon that's descending on me. Later he'll speak about my father and mother abandoned me, all in the same capital to Hillel. This is a man struggling. False witnesses have risen up to testify falsely about me. The Malbim says he's talking about the witnesses who came to his father-in-law Shoal and testified that he is engaged in treason. So his father and mother abandoned him, and then he finally gets married, and his father-in-law, the mightiest, the king of Israel, wants to pursue him and kill him. 
He goes to the plishtim and there he has to feign insanity to be able to escape the clutches of the plishtim because the king wants to kill him. What does such a person usually ask for? When a fugitive prays, what do you ask for? I would ask for it to die a natural death. I would ask for a roof over my head. I would ask for maybe a clean set of garments, maybe a morsel of bread and a cup of water to quench my thirst. Maybe somebody, somewhere to live for a few weeks and months with tranquility without anybody pursuing me. That's what we ask for. Basic survival. What does David HaMelech ask for? I want to sit in the house of Hashem all the days of my life. How does that happen? So Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana says, Malchus Shal, let me teach you how royalty thinks. Let me teach you how aristocracy prays. Let me teach you how nobility navigates life. At no moment in his life did David HaMelech ever believe he's a petty person. He never allowed his circumstances to reduce him to a smaller person who just asks for basic requests, not because he didn't need bread and didn't need a night, didn't need a roof over his head, but because David HaMelech always had his eyes on his truest and deepest potential. He had his eyes fixed on eternity. He was a king inside, even as a fugitive and refugee. You couldn't eliminate from him, you couldn't extricate from him his inner malchus, his inner dignity, his inner nobility. So even under these dire circumstances, he says, I ask for one thing. Shifti Hashem kol I want to dwell in the house of Hashem, Hashem to gaze at his glory, to visit his sanctuary. The one thing I want is intimacy with the divine. He asks for many things, many details, but it all comes down to achas shalti. How does it come to achas? Hashem says, you're asking for one or you're asking for many. David says, this I learned from you. That in life, I could connect to achas. I could connect to oneness. And that all my desires and all my requests, I see all as a derivative of one, of oneness. What David HaMelech is teaching is not that he only wants one thing. It's that really what everybody wants is only one thing. If I could see and go down to the core of every request. Sometimes I don't understand it. Sometimes I'm confused about what I really want. Sometimes I don't even know what I really want. But what I'm really looking for is achas. What is that achas? Shifti beves Hashem kol I want to be attached. I want to be connected. I want to be one with the source of all life. I want to be who I really am, which is a manifestation of divine oneness of achas. This is mimchal amaditi. This is something I need from you. To be able to connect to that oneness in every situation. To be able to see every experience of life, not as fragmented and broken and separate, but all part of that vacus, all part of that intimacy. With Hashem, with the Rebbeinu Shalolim. That's what David HaMelech is saying. Rabbi Abba says, this is Malchus Shal. He was a king, even as a fugitive. Because kingship doesn't begin from the masses coronating you. Hashem was a king before there was anybody there. There was nobody there. Malchus is inside. Sometimes there's a lot of people. Sometimes there's nobody. Sometimes David HaMelech is hiding in a cave. Malchus Shal, he still thinks like a Melech. And therefore, even in this situation, he says, you're Oidi, you're Ishi, you're Moiz Chayai, you're, you're, you're Mimi Efchat. 
I want to conclude with a story. I heard it not long ago. A friend of mine, a special Jew from his name is Rabbi Shmuel Dovid Friedman, authored the Svarim of Dafa La Dafa and Gemara. And he told me he heard this story from the person himself. So this is not a story, Klei Revi, Klei Chamishi. The chief rabbi of Antwerp for many years was a Jew named Reb Chaim Kreiswerth. He was a student in Yeshiva's Chachme Lublin in Lublin before the war. He survived. He was a legendary Talmud Chacham, a Baki Bashas, a great communicator, a great scholar, a great teacher. Reb Chaim Kreiswerth. Reb Chaim Kreiswerth shared this with Reb Shmuel Duvet Friedman. And he said he had a visa to get out of Eastern Europe during the war. And one day, there was a Jew who knew that soon the transports will begin. And he came over to Reb Chaim, who was then a young man, a Bach. And he said, I am going to be on the transport. I don't think I'm going to come out alive. Years ago, I have opened up a Swiss bank account. And I placed a huge amount of money into that account. He says, nobody knows the information for that account. So I'm giving you all this is before the days, of course, of credit cards. But I'm giving you all the information and passwords for the account so that you'll remember them. And one day, if you meet a relative of mine, please pass him on this information so you can go to Switzerland and claim this huge amount of money that lay there in the Swiss bank. And Reb Chaim Kreiswirt said, I remembered all the information. He had a Gewaldic Hizikarin. I remembered all the information. And I carried it in my brain. I escaped. I ended up in Antwerp, in Belgium, Antwerpen. And years, years have passed. You know, the story lay somewhere in the back of my brain. One day, it's a quarter of a century later. It's around 25 years later. I'm finishing Shachris and Shul. I'm folding up my talus, rolling up my tefillin. And there's a Jew who comes into Shul and he's collecting money, as is the minhig in many Shuls. And I always give tzedakah. I look at this Jew and I see he's not just poor. He's literally in rags. There's not a single garment that is complete. He is literally in rags. And he comes over to me, tzedakah, 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 a little charity. So I give him tzedakah, and then I say, Shalom Aleichem. I didn't know him. From Vuzaitir, where you're from. In Antwerpen, everybody speaks Yiddish till today. It's the only community in the world where you have Yidin. Today, Yiddish is, Hasidim speak Yiddish. It's very hard to find a Jew without a beard who speaks daily a fluent Yiddish and the whole community. But in Antwerp, it's still, it's still a reality. Because that Yiddish remained there. Today, the Hasidic communities, they all speak Yiddish, which is amazing and a great gift for the Yiddish language. But in others, it's not. And it used to be different, but everybody speaks Yiddish there. When I was there a little while ago, before Corona, it was really interesting to see, to hear, actually. Anyway, they're speaking Yiddish. He tells, he tells Reb Chaim Kreisvert's name. And, you know, an alarm goes off in the name, the name, the name, I know this name, it's the last name of the Jew who was going to the death camps. But Reb Chaim understood that it was a huge sum of money, and he's not just going to spill the beans. So he says, where do you come from? 
Who's your father? Who's your zayde? Which shtetl? Which family? Where do you live now? The Jew says, I have nowhere to live. The Chavmish came pruta. I don't have a penny to my name. He says, who gets to Essen? He says, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. From this money that you gave me. I am homeless. I live day to day. I have nothing. I'm a really poor man. I have nothing. How long are you planning to be here? He says, I'm planning to be here two weeks until I get enough money to travel to the next place. Reb Chaim starts suspecting that this is family. He says, he begins doing research. He has two weeks. He begins doing research. He sees him the next day. He does some more questioning, some more investigation. After a few days, he's convinced that he is the child of the Jew who was murdered during the Holocaust. And after he finishes his investigation, one day after Shachris, he comes for his tzedakah. And Reb Chaim Kreisvitz says, I need to share something with you. And he says, what I want to share with you is that you are a multi-millionaire. He says, Rebbe, hertuf treiben spas. You know, don't mock me. He says, treiben spas. I'm not mocking you. I'm telling you the truth. You are a very, very wealthy Jew. I should ask you for an adava so we could renovate. Sure. He says, what are you talking about? He says, I have a story to tell you. And he shares with him this story, the conversation he had with his father days before he was sent to the death camps. The information that he has. He writes down all the information for him. He says, Gates of the Schweiz, not far from Belgium. Gates of the Schweiz, go to Switzerland. Go to this and this bank and claim your money. And the Jew took the piece of paper. He went to Switzerland. He claimed the money. Indeed, he was transformed into a very, very wealthy Jew. Reb Chaim Kreisvitz looks at Reb Shmuel Dovid and he says, and at that moment I realized you can have a person who is presently wealthy, affluent, powerful, but they just don't know it. In their mind, they're impoverished. They're broken. They have nothing. They're homeless. They don't have a respectable attire, garment to put on. In reality, they have all the money in the world. That's what I learned at that moment. And essentially, this is what Reb Abba was saying. This is what David Amalek was saying. Sometimes I could look in the mirror physically or psychologically, and what do I feel like? I feel, who am I? I'm a piece of trauma. I'm a piece of depression. I'm a piece of addiction. I'm a mistake. I'm a loser. I'm a nebuch case. And I have proof. Look what I did yesterday. Look what I did last week. Look what am I going to do tomorrow. Look at this relationship of mine. Look at this issue. Look at this mess up. Look at this crisis. If, 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 if only this one was healthier. My mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my Rebbe, the world, the universe, the community, me, my psyche. But it's not that way. Rebbe says, Even when physically he had nothing, he knew he has everything. Because his kingship was internal. Hashem oiri v'yishi mimiira. Hashem mois chayai mimiyevchot. The most critical thing in life, Reb Chaim said was, a person needs to know how wealthy you are, how affluent you are, how rich your spirit, how glorious your soul, how connected your brain, your posture, 
Your posture is aligned with infinity. It's a manifestation of Hashem's light, Hashem's salvation, Hashem's strength. The fact that there are voices in my brain that tell me that I'm in rags, that I have nothing, that I'm empty. Those are voices that come from blockages. They're normal. They're human. I have to have compassion for them. But one has to know, who am I? Malchus Shah. Have a wonderful week, and thank you very much. Thank you. Hashem, we will continue this class next Tuesday. Same time, same place, 1245.